This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Acts chapter 21. Turn there in your Bibles with me or in your U version. I wonder, are we willing to give up everything and follow him? I wonder if all we have, all we possess, if all we had or all we possessed was simply Jesus, if we could really be content. We sing it, but do we really live like it? Apostle Paul did. We're going to follow him again today. For our guests, we're in a series in Acts, following the Apostle Paul through his missionary travels. And uh, he's going to get to the place today where he thinks this is it, it's all over, I'm done. And it's not going to be the end for him. He's had those experiences before when he was stoned and left out of city for dead. He's going to have another experience when he's going to be shipwrecked in the Mediterranean Sea and probably think this is it, but it's not going to be. God's not finished with you and me till God's finished with you and me. All right, we don't know when that's going to be. Acts chapter 21, I'm going to read down through verse 39. I'm going to stop on occasion and, and say something about what we read. And then I want to bring together the contents of the chapter and bring some applications about readiness. How ready are you? All right, so follow along with me while I read. Paul, before we get into the, actually to the text, Paul is just now leaving a meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. They're meeting there at Miletus, a seacoast town, and he's met with these guys that he loves very much. He spent three years investing in their lives, teaching them the word of God, leading them to Christ, first of all, and then training them how to follow Jesus Christ. And these are the leaders of that Ephesian church. Ephesus was a a metropolitan city, a capital city in the Roman province of Asia, which for us would be modern-day Turkey. And he said these last things to them. They have this emotional goodbye because Paul told them, guys, I'm never going to see you again. This is the last time. And it broke them up. It was hard for them. They grieved. They wept. And Luke says in verse 21, he's there with them. He says, and we tore ourselves away from them and set sail, got on the ship. And we came by a direct route to Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. So what's happening is they are leaving Miletus. They're kind of in the center part of Asia Minor. They're bumping down, stopping at these islands of Kaz and Rhodes, and then to Patera on the southern part of Asia Minor. And from there, they're going to catch another ship that's going to take them all the way over to the coast of Syria, close to where they want to go. Paul's destination is Jerusalem. It's where he wants to, he wants to arrive there and get there by the time of the festival of Pentecost. So after we sighted Cyprus, leaving it on the left, verse 3, they sailed southern underneath of uh, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. We sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, another seaport city, major city. And because the ship was to unload its cargo there. It's going to take a while for that to happen. We know that because of verse 4. Luke says, so we found some disciples in the city of Tyre, found some Christians, found a church, 
And we stayed there in Tyre for seven days, for a week. Well, through the Spirit, the disciples there told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, the Spirit of God has revealed this to you. Bad things are ahead in Jerusalem. We believe it would be best if you turned and went somewhere else. Go back to Antioch, your home church. Don't go to Jerusalem. When our days there were over, when the week came to conclusion, the ship was unloaded, we left to continue our journey while all of them, all these disciples, the church with their wives and children, escorted us out of the city. And kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said goodbye to one another. And then we, Luke says, we boarded the ship and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, about 30 miles south, again on the seacoast, docked there, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. Apparently the ship was taking on new cargo there. Then the next day we left and came to Caesarea, about 25 miles south of that, another seacoast city, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Now you remember, if you've been with us through our study in Acts, we've met Philip a couple of other times. The first time was in chapter, I think it's chapter six, where, um, where the, the uh, Greeks come to the apostles and say, in Jerusalem and say, you know what, our widows, our Greek-speaking widows, are not getting the care that the Jewish widows, the, the local girls are getting, if you will. Uh, and they're doing without. They need some basics because there's nobody to care for them and they're just being overlooked. And so the apostles wisely said, tell you what, you select seven men from your community, Greek-speaking Jews, and we'll appoint this business of taking care of the widows to those guys. And there we have the origin of the New Testament office of deacon. And these seven men, all of them were Greek-speaking, by the way, because we know that because they all had Greek names. Philip was one of the seven. They said, you choose seven men full of the spirit, full of wisdom, uh, and we will point them over this. And so Philip was one of those, but he's also called here by Luke, Philip the evangelist. He was a gospel spreader. That's what evangelist means, to spread the gospel, to tell the gospel. And we saw Philip last when he had, was in Samaria and he was part of an outbreak of the gospel in Samaria and people were coming to Jesus left and right. And uh, the seeds had been sown there long ago in John chapter four when Jesus, remember the woman at the well? And she went back into the city and told everybody, hey, this guy is the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. We need to follow him. The seeds have been spread there. And, and then there was this great outbreak of the gospel in Samaria Every man, I mean, it's like exploding. God says, I don't want you here anymore, Philip. Wow. I want you to go. Here's a place you're familiar with. If you've been listening, watching the news, I want you to go down to Gaza. Have you heard of Gaza here lately? I want you to go down there. It was nothing but desert. Nobody lived down there. I want you to go down there and, and hang out. So Philip goes down there and he hangs out and that's when he sees down the road coming this entourage. There's a lot of people and on a chariot was a man who was the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia. And he's reading from a scroll. He's been seeking to find out who their God is, these Jews. He's reading from a scroll and, and Philip approaches him and says, hey, what you reading there? I'm reading from this scroll, this stuff written by this man named Isaiah. Do you understand it? I really don't. He's, is he talking about himself or somebody else? And he's reading the passage, prophesying Jesus who would come, the Lamb of God, who before his shearers was dumb, 
he opened not his mouth. He says, is he talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip says, I can answer that for you. Well, come up here and do that. So he gets up in the chariot and rides with the guy for a while, and he tells him about Jesus, and the chariot stops. There's an oasis. There's some water there, and the guy says, ah, can I be baptized? And Philip says, you believe? I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. They get out of the chariot, and Philip baptizes this man, Philip the evangelist. This man, Philip, had four virgin daughters, unmarried daughters, who prophesied. These ladies had the gift of prophecy, the ability to hear directly from God and then to tell other believers, here's what God says, here's what God's up to. Here's, and, and so they had, it doesn't mean they were pastors or preachers. It said they had the gift of prophecy, speaking for God. And while we were staying there many days, <clears throat> there in Caesarea, a prophet, another prophet, a fellow by the name of Agabus, and we've met him before because he prophesied a famine would come to Jerusalem. And the Antioch church took up a love offering for the believers down in Jerusalem and sent that by way of Paul and Barnabas to the elders in the Jerusalem church. Agabus shows up again, the second time we meet him. He came down from Judea, from Jerusalem, and he came to us. He took Paul's belt. Let me have your belt, Paul. And Paul takes his belt off. And then with that belt, he tied his own, Agabus tied his own hands and feet. He hogtied himself, if you will, you cowboys. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Speaking for God, he's a prophet. You have this ability. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. When we heard this, Luke said, Both we, myself included, he says, and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem when they heard that. Now, they've heard the folks up north say in the spirit, woo, don't go to Jerusalem. They've heard this prophet Agabus say, you're going to be bound by the Jews in Jerusalem. And so everybody's clamoring together, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They begged him, and Paul replied, verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Luke goes on, he says, since we could not be persuaded, we couldn't change his mind. We gave up. We stopped talking and we simply said, the Lord's will be done. Well, after those days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Caesarea is down on the seacoast. Jerusalem's up in the hills. So we went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason, a Cypriot. He's a native of the island of Cyprus and an early disciple. This guy could have been from what Luke says, could have been one of the folks saved there in Acts chapter two when people from all the world had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they heard the gospel and they went back to their homes with the gospel. Maybe this is one of those people, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers, the church, welcomed us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. Now, the apostles are gone. 
I mentioned that last week. The apostles have gone into the world to be missionaries, to carry out the Great Commission. The Jerusalem church is now left under the leadership of pastors, of elders. James is the one who is named here. He's named before in Acts chapter 15. James uh, was a leader of the church then. He's a leader of the church now. Which James is this? And because there are several Jameses in the New Testament, you know, there were two apostles named James. And then there was a third James, at least, that we know of. We believe that, well, one of the apostles was killed, the Bible says. He was one of the first martyrs killed by Herod by the sword. He had his head cut off by King Herod. Probably this James is the same James who wrote the little letter toward the end of your New Testament with the name of James on it, written to Jewish believers who were being scattered by the persecution. And that James probably is the same guy here, James who is the half-brother of Jesus, right? Jesus' half-brother, James. We went into James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related in detail what God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. Let me tell you about the trip I just went on. We went to Asia Minor. We went up to Greece. We went up all the way up to Macedonia, to Philippi, to uh, Thessalonica, we went to Berea, we went to Athens, and he told them the story about Mars Hill. We went down to Corinth, to Achaia, and told about spending a lot of time there with, in, with the Corinthians. And then we bounced back and went over to Asia Minor, to Ephesus, and he recounted this whole story about Gentiles coming to Christ through that ministry. Well, verse 20, when they heard it, the elders heard it, they glorified God and said to him, let, let us tell you something. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. Look in Jerusalem. If you've met with our church, and the church is huge, some people suggest that the Jerusalem church, before finally they were all spread out and dissipated because of persecution, especially in the year 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, some suggest that the Jerusalem church could have been as big as 20,000 people. And don't think, where would they fit 20,000 people? What kind of building did they have? Church is not a building. They had church without a building. They met from house to house. They met in the temple courts. They met wherever they could. But this, and, and, the, and the elders are saying, look, man, look how many thousands of Jews have believed right here in Jerusalem, and they're all still zealous for the law. The law meaning what Moses wrote, Ten Commandments, much of what's in the book of Leviticus, the Jewish laws, traditions. They're having, they were having a hard time in Jerusalem breaking free from some of those things. They're zealous for the law. And here's what they've been told about you. Stories, rumors have come back from where you've been, Paul. And they say that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. They're painting you as a traitor to Judaism. What they told him. So the elders say, so what do we do about this? I mean, here you are. This is what people think about you. What do we do? They had a plan. Therefore, do what we tell you. They really didn't give Paul a choice here. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Do what we tell you. We have four men, four guys in our church, four believers in Jesus who have obligated themselves with a vow. They've taken a Jewish 
vow. We don't know which one. We don't know what it was about. It was just obviously something, something to get them ready spiritually for something. It involved fasting. It involved growing their hair and then shaving their heads. Some say it was the Nazarite vow. And it was a costly thing too because they had to purchase sacrifices. These four men, take these men, verse 24, purify yourself along with them. In other words, join in with their vow. Do what they're doing. And pay for them to get their heads shaved. Not only join in with them, but you offer to finance, pay for anything that any cost that, that it takes for them to do this. And then by doing that, everyone will know what they were told about you amounts to nothing. Why? Because you've gone through ahead with this Jewish vow that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed here in Jerusalem, We've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from eating meat that the blood's not been drained from, and from what is strangled. If you're going to eat meat, make sure the animal is properly killed, and from sexual immorality, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. That's already been taken care of. That was from a letter in Acts chapter 15. Send this to the Gentiles. So Paul goes through with this. Verse 26, the next day Paul took the man, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. As the seven days, that's how long this vow took, as the seven days were about to end, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple complex. The Jews from Asia, Asia being Ephesus, they've been following Paul. They'd followed him all over the world, giving him a hard time everywhere he went. And now they come down here and they saw him in the temple complex. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! Here's the man! Teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, against this place, the temple. What's more, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. Now, Paul hadn't done that, but they are saying that, and Luke gives us the reason there. He says, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian. How they know who, that he was a Gentile? Because he's from Ephesus and so are they. He, they recognize him. Previously, they'd seen Trophimus in the city with them. They didn't see him in the temple, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. Well, the whole city was stirred up. Verse 30, the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple complex, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, Paul's thinking, this is it. I so told those guys last week, I was ready to die in Jerusalem. Here it comes. Maybe they took him out. Maybe they start gathering stones to stone him. As they're trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment. And this is a Roman commander of a regiment of several thousand, a couple thousand soldiers that he commands in the city of Rome, just outside, immediately outside of the temple was a Roman fortress called the Antonia. And that's where they were. There were barracks there. There were cells there. That's where the soldiers lived. I mean, it's right next door to the temple. Word gets to him really quick. Man, there's a riot happened. They're about to kill somebody. 
And so he hears about this, that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Well, he's supposed to keep order in Jerusalem. So verse 32, taking along soldiers and centurions. How many soldiers did he take? Well, did we... Did he take one? We don't know, but it says centurions, and that's a plural word, and a centurion was in command of 100 soldiers. Because it's plural, we know there are at least 200 soldiers that he takes down. They come down from the Antonia, down to the street where this is happening, and immediately ran down to where all this is happening. And seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Why? Because they weren't allowed to do this. They stopped it. Then the commander came up and took him into custody and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Who is this man? What's he done? And they all began shouting and screaming. Some in the mob were shouting one thing and some another. And since he was not able to get reliable information, because he's hearing different things from different people, you know how it must have been, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. So they get Paul, and when they got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the mob's violence, for the mass of people following yelled, take him away. As he was brought, about to be brought into the barracks, Paul turns to this commander and says, am I allowed to say something to you? And he replied, because Paul spoke in Greek, he didn't speak in Aramaic, the language of Jerusalem, he spoke in Greek and he was surprised by it. And he said, are, are you a Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Aren't you this really bad guy? Probably heard that from somebody in the crowd, you know. He made an assumption and Paul said, no. I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Tarsus was a city in southern Asia Minor, large city, a free Roman city. Paul said, that's my hometown. That's why I can speak Greek. I grew up in that culture. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. Let's stop there. Let's talk about readiness this morning. First of all, are you ready for heartbreak? Are you ready for heartbreak? They had to tear themselves away from the emotional farewell with the Ephesian elders. They had to say goodbye to the church of Tyre on the seashore. People were weeping. Please don't leave. Please don't go to Jerusalem. Paul had to listen twice to caring Christians, beg him not to go to Jerusalem. And finally he says, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. Once you begin to love other people, once you begin to pour yourself into ministering to others, you set yourself up for heartbreak. I will never forget the words of my professor, my first semester of seminary. It was a, it was a, a, a biblical counseling class. And he said, guys, he said, if you go into the pastorate, you need to understand this right off the bat. You'll either quit the ministry or you will accept the fact that you are time and time again going to have to commit emotional suicide. What is he saying? Your heart's going to get broken over and over and over as you try to save people from their own choices and they will not listen. He said, you better be ready for that because it's coming. Paul says, you're breaking my heart. When you reach out as a missionary, as a missional Christian into the lives of those who don't yet believe, you can expect heartbreak because not everybody you talk to is going to accept Christ. The pain reliever, by the way, for that kind of heartbreak, what is it? Get this. How do you deal with that? 
It's confidence that God is going to accomplish his will. Here now, whether I understand it or not. Luke, it says in verse 14, we finally gave up, said the Lord's will be done. Secondly, are you ready for heartbreak? Are you ready for persecution or death for the cause of Christ? You know, I watch the news and I see what's happening over there. Christians in Iraq, how they're being killed by the thousands. Children being beheaded, being cut in half. Men being crucified. Women being taken and raped and then killed. It's it's the most ungodly thing I've heard of in my lifetime. It makes me think of what it must have been like back in Europe in the late 1930s and 1940s with the Holocaust. I cannot imagine. All because many of these people, for them anyway, because they dare claim Christ as their savior in the face of Islam. And like it or not, those Poor, and my heart bleeds for them. My heart breaks for them. I wish that we could go over and do something for them. But like it or not, I hope they're ready. They need to be. And we are blessed, so blessed in this country. We have survived so long with protections here in our, in our country, in our constitution against that kind of persecution. But let me ask you a question. If you were over there in, in Iraq or in China maybe, or in, in Islamic African countries, would you hold fast to your faith if somebody had a machine gun to your head, to your wife's head, to your children's head, and said, convert to Islam or die? What would you do? How ready are we? And I, I'll, I'll you know, I really don't see that kind of readiness in American Christians, not yet. Paul said, you know what? I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to be bound. I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And he proved it. He didn't know it at the time, but he still had some time left. He still had some travel left. His life wasn't going to end in Jerusalem. God wanted him to get to Rome, but he couldn't get to Rome until he went to Jerusalem. See, God had this rest and all that. What was the purpose of that? That was to get him to Jerusalem. And the ticket would be paid for by the Roman government. But that's what God had in mind. But he went there as a prisoner when he went to Rome. He died by execution. But before he died, he wrote some words in his second letter to his younger protege named Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy from this prison cell. He said, Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing, who have looked for Jesus to return. In verse 18, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can I ask you a question? I ask myself this question too. Are you ready like Paul? How do you get that kind of readiness? Let me suggest a few things. He was ready first. 
First, because he was surrendered to the will of God, whatever that might be. And that demands a total trust in God's sovereignty. That demands that we understand that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. We have to, under, we have to internalize that and believe it. Paul was ready because above everything else in his life, Paul trusted the Lord. In my own life, let me tell you how I know when I'm really not trusting God. It's when in my life, and this happens to all of us, in my life it's when surprises come, things that I didn't see coming, that I didn't expect, that may happen all of a sudden, out of the blue, Surprises that, man, I wish that wouldn't have happened. And my first response when it happens is, hey, God, I was in church Sunday. Hey, God, I gave. Hey, God, I've been reading my Bible. God, why me? But if I'm really ready, because I am trusting God's will in whatever whatever happens, my response will be when those surprises come. Okay, Lord, I'll be honest with you. I I don't know why this is going on. I didn't see this coming. I wasn't expecting this, but I know you've got this figured out. Help me to trust you through this valley. Paul was ready because he was surrendered to God's will, whatever it might be. Then Paul was ready for persecution because for Paul to live was Christ. Jot down the scripture reference, Galatians 2.20. Paul didn't value his own life, but he only valued what he could do for Christ. Materialism was not a value in his life. You bounce back and read verse 22 of chapter 20. Now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there except that in town after town. This is before the story we just read. In town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. It's not going to be good. But, verse 24, I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of God's grace. Paul didn't know what was ahead other than doesn't sound good, but you know what? I'm as ready as I can be. Paul was ready. Paul was ready because to die was gain and not loss. Philippians 1.21, Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I don't lose when I die. I win. And you can't say that. I can't say that. If we're so tied to things that we can't let go. You can't say that if you're not absolutely sure that the very moment your life ends here, it begins in heaven. And God's word tells you and me that we can have that insurance and that it's found in Christ. First John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Read that with me. Let's read it together. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know, not hope, not uh, trying to figure it out. God says, I want you to know and have that kind of assurance. So, Are you ready? 
Are you ready to be misjudged? You know, even today we can wrongly judge Paul. We can say, cheapers, man, why did you go to Jerusalem when it seemed like the Lord was doing everything he could to tell you, don't go? He was warning you. And some people are looking at Paul right now and, and saying, you know, Paul, you, I think you disobeyed the Lord's will and it got you into trouble that you didn't need to get into. But really, we don't know that. We weren't there. We don't have all the details and we don't know. I'm, I'm guessing here's what happened. In Tyre, they were in the spirit. And they warned him, don't go to Jerusalem. They knew what was ahead. Agabus told him what was ahead. And I think people just said, Paul, that doesn't make sense. You're going to be captured. It's going to be bad news. Just don't go. It's kind of like those, you know, folks who come to the Outer Banks on vacation. And they, they look at the weather map. And there is a tropical storm forming that everybody says may hit the Outer Banks and you say, I'm going on, going on vacation, I'm going to go to Nags Head vacation, and that's where the bullseye is for the storm. And all your friends look at you and say, are you stupid or what? <laughs> Don't go, Paul. I think these, were, these folks in Tyre and so forth were, they were sincere, concerned friends who, by the Lord's revelation, knew trouble was ahead. They were just trying to protect Paul. And sometimes we can do that. We can try to protect people from God's will, because it doesn't sound like a good thing to us. That's what enablers often do with friends and family members who are addicted. They think they're doing the right thing when they're really doing harm. Well, back in Jerusalem, the gossip and the rumors about Paul's work among the Gentiles had reached the ears of the church, and even the pastors of the church sounded a bit concerned that Paul was in some kind of doctrinal heresy. And that's because in Jerusalem, they were still locked into a Jewish culture. And in that culture, it was impossible for them to grasp what Paul was doing among the Gentiles. You remember Peter's story when he was up on the rooftop in Joppa, and the Lord said, gave him the vision of all the unclean foods. You know, there's lobster, and there's shrimp, and there's crabs, and there's, there's barbecue pork. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, I can't do it, because he was locked into his Jewish culture his traditions. And finally, Jesus said to him, listen, you stop calling unclean what I've cleansed. I died to free you so you can enjoy that stuff. Amen? So when the Jewish enemies of the gospel who had been trying to silence and even kill Paul and they've been following all over, they get to Jerusalem, they spread their stories about him. Those who should have known better misjudge Paul. When your life reflects Christ in a culture that doesn't know him, hey, that's us right now. Or in a culture like a church that's trapped in traditions that have them bound up, not freed up, you'll be misjudged. We have partners here, folks in our church who have come by coming to faith in Christ, they move from one worldview, not knowing Jesus, to one that's totally different. And because you did that, it's cost you some close relationships with friends and maybe family. But that's what we should expect. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We need to be ready for it. And one more way Paul was ready. Are you ready to do whatever it takes for others' salvation. So they say to Paul, 
here's what we want you to do. The elders told him, here's what you have to do. You have to take this vow, and that will show that you've not abandoned Judaism. So Paul went along with the elders' recommendation, and I think there's at least three reasons why he did that. Reason number one is because the elders of the church told him to do it, and he submitted to their authority. Even as an apostle, Paul recognized these men, these leaders, James and the elders, as the men God had placed there to protect the church. And ultimately, that was the concern of James and the elders, protecting the church. They didn't want to see Paul's mission to the Gentiles cause division in this mostly Jewish congregation. And they certainly didn't want to turn the non-believing Jews in Jerusalem against the church and relaunch another wave of persecution. So Paul, we need you to do this. And Paul practiced what he preached to the Ephesian church in chapter five. He wrote to them, submit to one another. We talked about this last week to the Thessalonians. He wrote, honor and respect those in leadership for their work's sake. And had he looked at these James and these elders and said, hey, wait a second. I am the apostle, capital A, apostle Paul. None of you are apostles, but I am. And you know what you can do with your rules? Take a hike. You can't tell me what to do. If he had had that kind of attitude, the damage to the church would have been great. He submitted to their authority. Secondly, Paul cared about the witness of the gospel more than his own rights. I really don't think Paul wanted to do this vow. But it was one way of not offending the Jews, both those who believed and those who hadn't. So Paul went along with it, even to the extent of paying for the other guys out of his own pocket. So they had to purchase sacrifices and so forth. He cared about the witness of the gospel. And you think about in the Bible, as I read about in the New Testament especially, who other than Jesus better displayed the it's not about me attitude better than Paul? As a Christian, and especially those of us who are leaders in the church, we may have the liberty to do some things, but we need to refrain from them so as to not unnecessarily offend. And we may need to go the extra mile, even though it's not required of us. We may have to lay down our rights to show our commitment to the gospel. It wasn't a matter of right versus wrong. This was a matter of doing what needed to be done. And then Paul was able to do this because Paul cared about the salvation of the Jewish people. Even though Paul was specifically commissioned As the apostle to the Gentiles, he loved the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he said, I would trade my own salvation, my eternity, if the Jewish people could be saved. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For although I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. This is the example to win the Jews. I've become all things to all people so that I may by all means save some. For us at Nags Head Church, that works into our vision as a church a couple of ways. Our vision statement says that we're here to reach all ages and all social groups. We're committed to change our methods as a church to fit our culture while our message never changes. For those of you who are first-time guests in our church, we didn't always have a band like this. 
I used to wear a suit and tie. Remember those days, buddy? Lord, thank you for saving me from that. (laughs) Whatever it takes, Paul cared, so he was willing to be flexible. How ready are you for the unexpected in your life? How ready are you for the possibility of persecution or even death? How how ready are you for being misjudged? How ready are you to do whatever it takes? Let's pray. Take this world and give me Jesus, we sang. Are we ready to do that, really? Lord, you're going to have to do some work in my heart for me to be willing to say, if all I possess is Jesus and all of my earthly, worldly goods have been stripped away from me, if I'm left alone and all I have is Jesus, I'm willing to be content with him. I pray that you do that work in my heart. I want to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. As I watch the news, uh, I read the stories and about the atrocities being committed by those, listen to me, whose allegiance to Satan, and that's who they're, uh, they're, that's who they're under. They're nothing but evil, and the things that they're doing against Christians and others who disagree with them, as I see all that, it it brings conviction on me, because here in this country, let's be honest, we, we tend to get all bent out of shape when our car won't start in the morning and we complain to God. I'm gonna have a lousy day today, my car won't start. Or our kid doesn't make the travel team and we complain to God, or... As a church, it seems like, man, those engineers are just taking way too long to get our roof fixed. They're moving too slow. We complain about stuff. What in the world is going to happen, American? If and when. At one time, I never believed such things could ever happen here. I'm not so sure anymore. What in the world is going to happen to us if and when true evil and persecution strikes us? What if it was your child being beheaded because of your faith? What if the whole world, not your car, not your kid's soccer team, what if the whole world, what if it was something that was happening that was truly unexpected, undeserved, and the most frightening thing you could imagine. Would you and I be ready? We can be, and that's the good news. But in order to be, we have to be ready to realize that we cannot live just some some form of casual Christianity. Christ has to become our all in all because he may be the only thing we have left to rely upon. I hope this week you'll pray. You may contact your congressman, your senator, 
I don't know what you can do, what you and I can do to help those people, but there's got to be something. I just feel so helpless in watching what's happening. But we sang a few moments ago a verse from a song that said, the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend. And when he does, I'm trying to say, I'm going to try to say this in a way that doesn't offend anybody. But Allah will be proven to be nothing. When he comes and, and with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will take care of all that's happened. Vengeance is his. Judgment is his. But let's pray for them. Would you join me right now? I don't, I don't know, Lord, I can't see anybody's hearts over there, but I hope and pray that they're ready. And I, I only think of us here, Lord, in, in this country. How ready are we? It's not going to get better before you come, Jesus. It's going to get worse. We know that. You, you warned us of that. Thanks for Paul. Thanks for his attitude, for, for the resolve in his heart that said, I'm ready to be bound, I'm ready to die. In Jerusalem, if that's what it takes, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, for I'm crucified with Christ. May we have that same trust in you every single day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.